Good evening, guys. Hey, for all of you who don't know me, my name is Danny. I'm the campus pastor here at Mosaic at WW. And uh, um, for those of you who don't know this about me, um, over the last five months, I became a dad of two, um, a toddler and a newborn who is now like seven weeks or something like that. So um, now that, that's crazy. And um, it's been a lot. Um, but here's one good thing that comes out of it solid dad analogies. Like now I have those and I can now use them because it's relevant to my life. So um, with that in mind, let me use one. Let's start with there, all right? All right, so imagine um, Asher, our son, he's two, he's awesome. And uh, imagine if um, Asher was um, with me and we go into the store and then um, like there's all the cool fun stuff in the store, like all the cool toys, um, all the interactive stuff. And, and then I go on the ground and I find like a broken toy that's kind of like crumpled up and there's like, like somehow there's glass involved and there's like glass sticking out of the edges and stuff. Like if I handed that to Asher, what would you think? You'd be like, oh, this doesn't feel very safe. Like maybe he shouldn't be giving that to his son. But because I wouldn't do that. That would be a bad thing to do, right? We all agree on that, right? Yeah, 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 good, good. Now, what I would love to do, what I do love to do with Asher is I like to take him into fun stores like the Disney store, like World of Disney over at Disney Springs, and like let him go and explore and see all the cool toys and all the fun things that don't have glass sticking out of the edges that are like educational, have the label Disney on it, um, probably something involving Baby Groot or, uh, the, or the child from The Mandalorian, like something cool and fun um, because... I, my goal is not to be a bad dad, right? And you see, this is what we discover in the gospel. A good dad that doesn't desire for us brokenness, but beauty. Things that are for our benefit and for our good. And as we have been unpacking um, the implications of the gospel through the letter of Ephesians, uh, what we've been seeing over and over and over again is how God, in place of brokenness, brings and transforms it into spaces of beauty. That the good news is that in a world of disarray, reconciliation is possible. That the human race that has turned in and on, on itself and against our creator has been adopted back into the forever family of God by our creator so that we could flourish with himself, with God, and with one another. The implications are absolutely endless. And Paul, as he is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus that we know as the book of Ephesians, he is unpacking these radical implications of how brokenness is transformed into beauty. Now, last week, Renaud is up here, and he was showing how, how the apostle Paul was calling the church in Ephesus from things like lying for the sake of disunity to radical honesty for the sake of unity. From unrighteous anger to righteous anger. From stealing to working hard and living in radical generosity. In essence, away from brokenness and towards beauty. Over and over and over again, this is the mega thing that Paul is unpacking. Brokenness to beauty. This is vital life stuff of the gospel. The vital life of the gospel th spreading through a world of destruction. And this is where Paul continues this thought tonight. And specifically, what we're going to unpack tonight is how he enters into two spaces, the way we use our words and the way that we process our emotions. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, 
Um, We are in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 29. So I'll start off with a question. Do you ever struggle with your words? Here's an example. Do you ever leave um, a conversation, maybe with like a friend or a family member or a close friend or even a coworker, and you just leave going, ugh, I said like everything wrong. Like everything that came out of my mouth was like the last thing I meant to say and everything I should have said didn't come out at all. Or I tried and it got all muddied up. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? How about anger? Do you ever struggle at processing anger in your heart? Have you ever held on to things like bitterness and anger rather than living in radical forgiveness? These two spaces, both the words that either come out of our mouth or, let's be honest, our words aren't just coming out vocally. They also come out whenever we get our phone out and go on social media now. It's so quick to get our voices heard by so many friends and family from around the world, right? And not always the best things are said. Bitterness, anger, frustration, slander, these things that come up internally and begin to express themselves externally. These are the two spaces, our words and our difficult emotions of anger. It's what Paul's going to be looking at in the book of Ephesians tonight. But here's a word of caution. If you're anything like me, when when you look into the pages of Scripture, it's so easy to make it um, kind of like a fixing ourselves guide. Have you ever heard like... um, not so great uh, acronyms like basic instructions before leaving earth. I don't know if you have. If you have, it's not a great one because that's, it's so, it doesn't encapsulate all that the scriptures are meant to be. Because we can so easily look at the Bible and go, oh, things to do, things not to do. And what can happen is one, what's scary is we do it for a while. That's actually scary. Because when we go, oh, I'm not supposed to speak bad words. Oh, check, I do that. Because what happens then? It puffs us up. Like we have got it figured out on our own. Or we go to the other version where we see that and we just beat ourselves up. We're like, man, I could never do that. But we forget about the radical grace of Jesus. So as we go into the scriptures tonight, what I want you to do, because this verse seems so practical, is to keep your eyes focused on the mega theme that the gospel brings beauty from brokenness right? The gospel brings beauty from brokenness. If you get nothing else tonight, that is it. The gospel brings beauty from brokenness. And let's go ahead into Ephesians 4, starting in verse 29. All right, here we go. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Easy enough, right? Okay. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So he starts by saying, replace brokenness, which is corrupt talk, with beauty, edifying talk. So let's start with those two words, corrupt and edifying. The Greek word that's used here for the word corrupt is this Greek word sapros, and sapros means rotten. It's used a few other times in scripture um, to reference rotten fish and rotten fruit. Yum! Like that makes a great smoothie, right? And you like, you think of things that are rotten. Um, Another dad analogy, uh, I've been changing more diapers than I ever could have imagined. Um, And it smells rotten. 
I, and like technically it's probably not rotten, but it smells pretty rotten to me. And like, the, like that garbage stinkiness, it's like, whew, it's terrible. Think about what, what's your version of rottenness that you can think of? Like, have you ever seen, like you left a piece of fruit that was at the bottom of your fridge and it was there too long, you open it up and now it's like fuzzy and has a name and has eyes and it's looking at you. Like, like that kind of rottenness, like rotten, let no rotten talk come out of your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So here's the thing. This is the kind of talk that when you see it, it's just, it's gross. Here's the thing though about corrupting talk. It's not always lies. Here's why this matters. A few verses before, a few weeks ago, we were unpacking that Paul says to put away all falsehood. Before he covered lying, he, he covered fake news there. Like all the misinformation that we could spread, that's been covered. He's talking about something a little different, a little more nuanced now. Because you see, corrupt talk is different than false talk exclusively. Because what he's referring to here is when we might actually have a point to what we're saying. And that makes it even more dangerous to ourselves and to others. Because you see, so often what can happen is the facts back up our, our, our words. Like we have oh, so many reasons for why we're right in this argument or in this discussion or on this social media post. Like we have the point. If they will just shut up and listen, it's all gonna be better for everyone, right? Corrupting talk does not have to be false talk. It just has to be corrupting. See, because here's where it gets scary. Here's how it gets rotten. Because we filter our words through our own rightness. When we think of self-righteousness, we've talked about this a few times. When we, talk, when we think of self-righteousness, we usually think of what somebody else, somebody who's far more like quote unquote religious than us does. But you don't have to, you don't have to know anything about any religion to be self-righteous. We all have our own version of self-righteousness, but the only problem is we like theologize it and try to make it something that somebody else would do. But self-righteousness really just comes down to self-rightness. When I believe that I am right in and of myself and nobody can tell me different. And when we filter our words through our self-rightness, like it's unbelievable what happens on Twitter, right? The tweets like write themselves. You can just comment right at somebody and it's like, Man, what am I doing? But it doesn't matter. You don't even think that, right? Because you're so right in what you're saying. But guess what? This does not change the fact that we are oftentimes being jerks. The fact that oftentimes we might be right in the content that we're delivering, but man, our motives stink. They're corrupt. They are rotten fruit. It's rotten talk. My words oftentimes get me into trouble, um, especially when I am doing what I like to call keeping score. Do any of you guys keep score? I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, I especially keep score with my wife, Allie. Um, I put a decent amount of effort into being a loving husband, to be kind, to be helpful, um, to be compassionate, to listen, more or less. Uh, I, uh, um, I even do the dishes, right? Like I do the dishes and I clean the house. I even press the button on the Roomba so she vacuums up stuff. Like it's pretty good stuff. 
And it looks great on my scoreboard. Now, I don't have a physical scoreboard like in my office or something. It wouldn't go with the aesthetic. Instead, though, it's like a, a scoreboard that's up in my mind. And, and I don't always reference the scoreboard, but I really do when like I'm in an argument or something and I start bringing these things out. And you know what's crazy about when I bring up the scoreboard? It doesn't actually go well. It never makes the conversation better because here's the thing about the scoreboard. I'm always looking at like, there's the ERA on the scoreboard, um, the earned righteousness average. And like, I, I, I'm like batting a thousand um, in my own righteousness. But what I'm not looking at is right above, there's a sponsorship logo right there. And it says sponsored by Danny's self-righteousness. It's crazy. <laughs> Ah, but that really comes out as soon as Allie points it out. And she's like, wow, where is this coming from? And I'm like, nowhere good. (laughs) See, my corrupt talk is corrupt, not necessarily because of the content, but because of its motives. My motives are oftentimes to prove myself, to show myself worthy and valuable, lovable, to show off. I don't know what your motives are. I don't know your heart. Search your heart. What's there? What's your motives? Is it to tear other people down? Do you like to bully people? Be honest. Do you like to, do you use corrupt talk to actually avoid conflict or do you use it to incite conflict? How do you use corrupt talk? Regardless of your motive, corrupt talk is always rotten fruit. It's always rotten fish. Now, here's the deal. Corrupt talk. But Paul goes, continues on, and he does something practical because like all that sounds pretty like, oh, I don't want to, okay, I don't want to do the corrupt talk stuff. How do I do the other stuff? And if you are a person that loves really practical, like three actionable steps that you can take, um, you're welcome. Paul gives you that tonight. Um, and in honor of that, we even have some slides that we created. I know, that's really fun, right? And what I have for you tonight is three questions that the Apostle Paul would ask for, for us to ask ourselves when we are looking to speak. So I'm going to go at them one at a time. So let's continue on in the verse. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Check, but only such as is good for building up. So here's the first question. Is this good for building up? Is this good for building up? It's a solid question to ask, right? Um, when I think of that, I think of, uh, do you have a friend who like is just so encouraging to like everyone? Even better yet, it's the friend who doesn't like just give you like empty flattery, just trying to like make you feel good all the time, but like actually like they mean what they say and like they speak truth into you when you don't even believe it about yourself. Like that kind of a friend That's the kind of friend that is building you up. Those are the kind of words that we should desire to speak out. It doesn't always have to be necessarily quote, unquote, positive. It can be corrective, but it's even correcting words that build you up towards Jesus. So second thing, second question to ask. He continues on. So he says, let no corrupting talk come in your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. As fits the occasion. So, second question, does this fit the occasion? Is this an appropriate question? See, no word is more rotten than a word that is spoken into the wrong context. (laughs) 
Now, when I think of a wrong context, I think of like some kind of somber occasion. So imagine like you're at a funeral or something like that. And it's, it's pretty somber, right? And then like somebody waltzes in and is being super loud and obnoxious and starts making super inappropriate jokes. You'd probably say that like, that doesn't fit the context. There might be other places in life where you can speak like that. I don't know. But like, that is definitely not the right context. This is not the right occasion. But oftentimes it's so much more subtle than that. An example I thought of is like when a friend shares something with you and what they're sharing, they're sharing something that they have been feeling convicted about, but they like want you to tell them it's okay. They want you to just go, oh no, that's totally okay. That's totally what Jesus wants for you. And inside you're going, no, it's not. It's really not. No, totally okay. Yeah, I'm sure that's fine. When all the while you know the truth, that those are words that don't fit the occasion to try to placate and avoid awkwardness or a difficult conversation. You use words that don't actually fit the occasion. But when we speak words that do fit the occasion, they do two things. One, they are words that are necessary, and two, they are words that are useful. They are words that are necessary and useful. And what they do is they actually empower people and draw people into connectivity with Jesus. They are words that are enabled by the Spirit of God that we would be able to call people in epic callings, that we would point out things in people that they don't even see in themselves, that they are inappropriate for the occasion so that they would be, have radical obedience to the Spirit of God, that they would have transformative acts of love. These are the kind of words that fit the occasion. Thirdly, third question he asks to ask ourselves is not only that, but only such as good for building up, is it's the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the third question is, will this give grace to those who hear? Now that phrase, give grace in Greek, um, it's this concept of granting a present to somebody. So it's like when you, when you have the opportunity to speak words of life into somebody, it's like you're giving them a Christmas present. And it's like, it's like the best Christmas present. Like one that you're like, you're excited to give them. And then when they open it, it's gonna be so awesome. And this present is a present of gladness. That would be bring gladness over them. Now, again, sometimes words are corrective. That's not going to automatically bring gladness over somebody. But ultimately, it's going to draw them near to Jesus, which is a present of gladness. These are the kinds of words that we are called to speak. Words that are building people up, words that fit the occasion, and words that give grace to those who hear. Because you see, our words carry power. And they can throw others off course, or they can propel them towards epic callings in life. We have that ability. We have influence over others. That's the entire thing behind social media, right? We want to have influence. We want to be known. We want to be seen. That's, that's a part of this whole thing. We have influence. You see what happens when a celebrity gets pasted with terrible comments. And it can actually hurt. It can actually do a lot of damage. Sticks and stones may break my bones. It's like the dumbest phrase ever, right? But words will never hurt me. Good one. <laughs> like I'll take physical pain all day, but words really hurt. Your words matter. And for those of us who follow after Jesus, they actively demonstrate the gospel of moving from brokenness to beauty as we move from corrupt talk 
to edifying talk. Corrupt talk, rotten talk to edifying talk. Edifying is this concept of something that's nutritious, something that is valuable, something that's useful, something like something that you might find like, um, I don't know, like pressed over in Winter Garden. They have like really delicious smoothies that are packed with like 12 like 12 cups of kale and somehow it still tastes delicious. I don't know how they do it. I hate kale. But like something that's so nutritious, you're like, oh, that was so good. So beneficial. Like you actually feel better for eating something unlike most of the stuff that I tend to like to eat that makes me feel bad after I eat it. Our words matter and that's what our words contribute. In fact, they make such an impact that the Apostle Paul did something that kind of feels a little bit like a detour, but it's not. Here's what he writes. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's kind of weird, right? He's being very practical talking about our words. And then he goes to a very theological concept. He's talking about the grieving of the Holy Spirit. But what he's getting at is just in case you thought God was okay with the corrupt way that you were talking to one another. He's not. He's not okay with. He's not okay with you breaking down his other children. He's not okay. He's not okay that they do it to you. He's not okay. That's not what God's desire is for you. Now, I get it. My life, your life can probably oftentimes feel so ordinary that it really is hard to even think that we could have a real impact on anyone, especially an eternal one. That it feels like we just go home, we do life, we go to work or we're furloughed, so we're not going to work or whatever, and we're like doing life and, and, and that's life. And like there's no, there's, there's no eternal consequence to it. There's no eternal benefit to it. It's just, it's life. We don't, see, we don't see the opportunity that God has placed before us every single day. See, every day, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have the opportunity to actively partner with the Spirit of God today. Not one day, not if he one day calls you into a third world country. Not one day if he moves you to another state. Not one day when you get the call to go back to work. Today, he has opportunity for you to partner with him today. And here's the deal. When we tear down one another with our words and our corrupt talk, it brings sorrow to the heart of God. See, Jesus, he prayed that we would be one as he and the Father were one. He told his disciples, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Our unity would be the display of the gospel of brokenness to beauty to the world. But so often, but so often we grieve the Holy Spirit when we cut off his influence in our lives, in our words, in our emotions, in our thoughts, in our everything. And this is not a one-time reality. It is a moment-by-moment decision and reality that we live in. Now, if you're already feeling guilty about that, like, oh, I grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm so I'm the worst. Here's, here's the kicker of grace. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is not a salvation issue. You are sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you is the confirmation stamp of that. It's saying, open at the return of Jesus or when you make it into the other side of eternity. Sealed, signed and sealed. But, so this isn't a matter of losing our place as adopted kids of God. It's a matter of losing out on the opportunity 
to be a part of the working of the redemption that God wants to do with us and through us today. So this is really about opportunity lost. And guys, I'm sick of losing opportunities with the Spirit of God. I desire to live in step with the Spirit and allow Him to be my guide on a more regular basis. Do you? So, verses 31 and 32. He moves on. He starts with words. And now he's going to finish up this paragraph by speaking into emotions. So, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Easy. Check. Along with all malice, just in case like you, there's anything missing. Malice as well. Instead, what should we do? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Replace brokenness with beauty. Replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. As I was reading this passage, um, there may have been someone who came to your mind. You thought, yeah, I could forgive anyone but that one. Don't ask me to do that, God. I can't. You don't even know. I could stop being bitter at anyone but her. I could get, let go of all my anger, but I cannot let that, pers- let that person off the hook. See, this is the difficult reality that we face because we still live in a broken world filled with broken people like us. So how do you reconcile the unforgivableness of this world with the unrelenting forgiveness of the world that Jesus came to institute? Especially in, the con- in this context, context that he's referring to, he was talking to Christians. Remember, re- let's look at the passage one more time. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So this forgiveness, he's actually talking about a specific type of forgiveness. Forgiveness within the family of God. Because here's the thing. It's one thing oftentimes for us to forgive people who don't have the same set of morals worldview as you. But how do you reconcile the anger when someone who follows Jesus betrays your trust or your friendship? When bitterness grows as you watch a friend or a coworker who is known as a Christian making choices, saying, saying comments that you just know don't represent the heart of Jesus and it's just welling up inside you. Or when malice grows in you as you see Christians on the other side of the political divide and you just don't understand why they are standing over there. What, are you, what about when someone wrongs you before they know Jesus? How are you supposed to look past that hurt if now all of a sudden they're a follower of Jesus alongside you? This reminded me of a story of um, a woman. I've referenced her before. Uh, she's honestly like a huge in- inspiration for me. Her name is Corey Tin Boone. If you don't know anything about Corey Tin Boone, she has two incredible books um, that I would highly recommend. The first one is called The Hiding Place. So good. Um, and this is, a, this is an excerpt from The Hiding Place that I wanted to share with you. Now, Corrie ten Boon um, uh, was a Christian um, in the Netherlands. She was from Amsterdam. And uh, that was all well and good. And then the Nazis invaded um, the Netherlands and took over, and, um, took over shop. And she was not a Jew, so she really didn't have to fear for anything if she would have just kept her head low. But the only problem was she loved Jesus. And Jesus calls us into uncomfortable things. 
And Jesus was calling her and her sister and the rest of her family into using their business as a front to be able to be a, a funnel for the Underground Railroad getting, um, getting Jews out of the Netherlands into safer countries. Now, at one point, she was, um, her and her sister were finally arrested and they were sent to a concentration camp themselves where they endured humiliation, um, malnutrition, uh, everything you could imagine. And God, by God's sovereignty, he allowed for a technical glitch in the system where she was supposed to get sent off to a worse concentration camp. Instead, she was um, uh, released <laughs> and uh, she was sent home. And she was eventually able, after the fall of uh, the Nazi regime, she was able to go around the world um, and preaching about the radical forgiveness of, of Jesus. And um, so what I'm about to read is an excerpt from her book that has been super impactful for me. Hopefully it's a blessing to you. So here's what she says. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filling out the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat German, um, to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed to hear here in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from Hollanders' minds. I like to think that they were, that that's where forgiven sins were thrown into. When we confess our sin, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There was never question after a talk in Germany in 1947. People always stared in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat, the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parch parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now, he was in front of me, hand thrust out a fine message for a line. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember? One prisoner among the thousands of others. But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, I had become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? As I stood there, I, whose sin had every day been forgiven and could not, Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew it. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. 
since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to their outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is the act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand in the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down to my arm, sprang into my joined hand. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, this former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest situation, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just flowed out from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing that I've learned of eight, at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw from them from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to him, he teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. You would have thought, having forgiven the Nazi guard, that this would be like child's play. It wasn't. For weeks, I seethed inside, but at last I asked God again to work his miracle in me. And again, it happened. First, the cold-blooded decision, then flood of joy and peace. I had forgiven my friend. I was restored to my father. Forgiveness is tough. No matter how difficult the situation, if it's seemingly insignificant or if it's Absolutely heinous. C.S. Lewis um, wrote, we can forgive the unforgivable in others because Christ has forgiven the unforgivable in us. I mean, who would blame Corey Tin Boone for spitting on the guy, for slapping him in the face? Like who could possibly blame her? He had every right to that. But yet she demonstrated radical forgiveness that could only be empowered by the spirit of God. In the face of our difficult emotions, we are able to healthfully process them and respond in radical forgiveness. So where in your life are you holding unforgiveness? Where are you allowing bitterness to fume within you? I would assume you probably have pretty good reason for it. But what if, but what if we forgave the unforgivable in others and even in ourselves? Because Christ has already forgiven given the unforgivable in us. Demonstrating kindness. Not just like acting nice to people, but demonstrating genuine kindness like Jesus. Living tenderheartedly. Not allowing the, the callousness of this broken and fallen world to allow our hearts to become callous and broken as well. Forgiving. Not because the other person has the right to become forgiven, but because we have received beauty when all we have ever displayed is brokenness. That now we can respond in kind. Now, here's not what I'm saying. This is not what Paul's writing. This is not what the Spirit intended in this verse. Do better. Act better. 
control your mouth. Just do it already. That's totally not what he's getting at here. Uh, in two of my discipleship groups I lead, we're currently going through a study called Sonship. And in Sonship, after week one, you do an assignment called um, the tongue test. And the tongue test is where essentially you're supposed to live out this passage for a whole week. For a whole week, don't gossip, um, don't slander, don't, um, don't complain, say nothing negative, only things that are edifying for a week. Here's why it's in there. Not because they thought it was possible. It's in there to expose the fact that it's not on your own. It's there to expose the fact that we don't have enough good to figure it out on our own. That we need to live in radical desperation. The point is that we would recognize that we cannot perfectly demonstrate loving God and loving people without connection and abiding with Jesus himself. The point is to help us abide, to point it out. See, to be connected to him through the power of his spirit so that we love more, hate less, that we could live more towards our true self and less towards our false self. And when we fail, which will happen, we would know that he is right next to us, ready to dust us off. If you struggle with your words tonight, I'm with you. And so is the spirit of God, who's better than anything else. If you struggle with bitterness or anger or malice, wrath, me too. And there's one also that's on our side, the spirit of God, and he's even better. See, this is the story of God breaking through into a world of brokenness. And you know how he does it? Through his church through followers of Jesus coming together, encouraging one another, building one another up, speaking words that give life, that are edifying, that are encouraging, that allow us to be sent forth to conquer. Not a perfect people, but a, pe a people that is being perfected as we draw near to Jesus and are being transformed together from brokenness into beauty. Because our Father does not give bad gifts. We have a good dad. And he loves us fiercely. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come on up. So whatever you're struggling with tonight, wherever you're at, if God's word convicted your heart in any way, don't let it go. Sit on it, talk with somebody. Know that wherever you're at, the spirit of God is not far away. He wants to work within you because he has sealed you for the day of redemption. Let's pray. Father, we need you desperately. God, the trouble is we don't know how much we need you. I don't. And maybe it's better that way so that we can continue to discover the depths of your grace as we discover the depths of our need of you. Lord, would you be an agent of grace in our lives so that we could be agents of grace to the world around us, to one another. Lord, even in this room, even online in living rooms, if there are relationships that are tense, filled with corrupt talk, filled with bitterness and anger, Lord, would you bring reconciliation tonight? Lord, would you do a work that only you can do tonight? 
in your people, through your people, would you do what you can do and you alone are capable of? Our best is not nearly good enough, but yours is. So Lord, we stand on your promise. We stand on your goodness. We stand on your passion. We stand on your care. Jesus, we need you. Would you be with us tonight? Would you remind us of our sonship that we are adopted as sons and daughters and it is through the blood sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus that we have been adopted into sonship. Not by our own efforts, not by our own rightness, our own correctness, but by your righteousness, by your pain and your glory. So we need that tonight. Lord, would you remind each of us of the gospel in our hearts and in our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.